we love to just create this idea of, of the impossible can be achieved. And so one of my mentors there, she would often ask me, I don't think there's any way you could do this, Matt. Um, and just whatever it was she said, I was about to stay up all night to try and do it. Um, just the joy that comes out of building a product or a tool even that solves a problem. That's ultimately what software engineers are after. Hey everybody, this is Driven By with Sam Coates. On this podcast, you're going to hear people that see a need and they do something about it. You're going to hear what drives them, lessons learned along the way, how they built it, and how things are evolving yet still today. It is great to have you on the show. For more information, go to podcast.sampcoats.com. That's podcast.sampcoats.com and subscribe to our weekly email list and check out my show on Twitter, Instagram at Sam P. Coates. This show can be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts at Driven By with Sam Coates. If you like the show, please spread the word, tell a friend, and leave a review and check out previously recorded episodes. I hope you have a great day. My guest this week is Matt Cook. Matt is currently the VP of Engineering at Tilled. Before that, he launched his own startup, and prior to that, he was head of platform for Shipped. As you may know, Shipped was started in 2014 and was acquired by Target in 2017 for $550 million. As you know, we live in a growing gig economy where people get to work in flexible ways that were not possible before. This is powered by technology, consumer needs, and how platforms bring together service fulfillment in a fast, trackable, and cost-effective way. Even if you're not interested in how businesses like this scale and what it takes for them to operate well, you can still learn a lot of things that can be automated with your own day-to-day experiences and also where the world is continuing to move from a technological perspective. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Matt Cook. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world, so this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Now we're going to get back to the show. What do you think drew you to computer programming or coding? And even if it wasn't those things that early, what do you think interested you at an early age to where you kind of just went down this career path? The first real interest I had was the game StarCraft. Uh, you know, as a predecessor to kind of World of Warcrafts, the, the really popular kind of modern game. But yeah, it was, a, you know, a real-time strategy game. It required a lot of keyboard usage. And you know, there were just a lot of variables. You, you kind of built up an army and, you know, attacked other players. But just understanding how the, the different components of that game worked. And the further I got into it, just realizing, honestly, it was just a, a fun way to learn about technology and to, to just kind of think about it. So I spent a lot of time on on the computer as a result of that. And I'd say that just kind of got me exposed. You know, I, got, I did some programming courses in high school, did some kind of visual basic type stuff. And we built like a Minesweeper clone. Um, and that was just fascinating to me, just understanding that we could build a digital 
kind of version of this logic and, and, and an interface where you know users could interact with it and play. So yeah, it's, it's mostly say it was gaming that got me into it. Do you think from all the coders and programmers that you know that you've worked with or the ones that have worked for you, is there like a common interest to gaming and engineering that you see with everybody that goes down this career path? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of nerds in software development. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know that it's been a consistent game, right? Like certainly a number of folks were into like Halo and kind of your console gaming, you know, others were, you know, into kind of the deeper kind of real computer science-y type things. But yeah, I, I think, I think there's a pretty, pretty common thread of just being fans of video games in general. Yeah. Have you seen where there's kind of this construction engineering standpoint? not just from the technology, but creating these systems, but then also from the people side of it and kind of putting the pieces together, playing chess with people as well. I mean, has that been the same kind of interest or is that more of a struggle? Or are they both kind of hand in hand when you're really trying to build out either a team, an organization or whatever that looks like? Yeah, uh, you know, team dynamics are, are very different from team to team. I've had the pleasure of leading teams that range from, you know, customer support in my first roles at Blackboard. And, you know, then production support, which is, it kind of falls under the engineering spectrum, but, you know, it's, it's not necessarily coding. It's a little bit more like scripting and, and kind of interacting with the database to solve customer problems, as well as core engineering teams. And they all have their different kind of dynamics, but, but it's no different than team sports and, you know, just lots of experiences there, right? You have each team you're a part of has different players and, and they play different roles and they combine in different interesting ways. Yeah. When you came out of Clemson, you worked for Blackbaud and then Draxco. Is that right? And so with Blackbaud, you were a support manager. And then with Draxco, you were director of operations. Yeah. So Daxco um, was, was the second one. But, but yeah, you know, just, I mean, you think about like the rise of YouTube, even, you know, the proliferation of the open source community. Uh, there's just so many tools available online and I mean I, I still remember uh, as my career was just getting off the ground I still remember uh, you know the early Internet Explorer days so Internet Explorer was the only act you know lens through which we could view the web and it was frustrating um, and I remember when Firefox launched and, and being a really early user with Firefox and just thinking how cool that felt and then, of course, nowadays, you kind of have, have seen what the browser wars have done. And, and there's lots of different uh, great browsers out there. But, yeah, just all of that has, has allowed access to information and the ability to learn about software and how code works without necessarily needing to have that kind of formal college background. Can you talk about the value add of really trying to rethink distribution or any part of the customer experience with any company on how computer programming and software development, how it can radically change a business and create efficiencies or create scale, et cetera, just even at a, at a base level? What would you say to somebody or how would you encourage people to think if they own traditional operating businesses that are still handling things the, the way things were done 20, 30, 40 years ago? Yeah, that's a great question. My challenge would be to take it one level further than wherever you're comfortable now. So let's say, for example, uh, maybe you're comfortable with Microsoft Excel and, you know, kind of inputting some data and maybe generating a chart. Like take that one level further, right? If, if, a, if a VLOOKUP, you know, combining two different tabs into one is if that's a complex hurdle for you, we'll go watch a, a YouTube video and take that on. Right. I think the, the big aha moment for me was just how fast we could build tools that had a, a radical positive impact. You know, and they, they had this kind of one time upfront cost that it just pays dividends for really as long as you continue to operate the business that way. I'll go back to the early days at Blackbaud. Uh, we had, I'd say, maybe 30 customer support teams there. So there's something like 180 customer support agents in the department. And, you know, one of the things we, we had back then was we had uh, this kind of shared uh, number of licenses to log into. It's, it's kind of an early uh, predecessor to Zoom, right? So the ability to kind of screen share remotely with a customer. Well, we had, I can't remember how many it was, let's call it 15 licenses, and we had 180 customer support agents, right? Well, our process was to 
I would try and log into one and it would, you know, you were already logged into it. And so I wouldn't be able to log into it. So then I would just go log into the next one, right? Uh, we can imagine how frustrating this is. I'm now attempting to log into 12 different accounts and they're, you know, they're all, I'm just kind of cycling through them. And so uh, back then we use a language called auto hotkey, which is a pretty old, just kind of scripting language, right? So it, it allows you to interact with other programs that are already on your computer um, and do various things. And so we wrote a script there that it, it just iterated through those different login accounts, right? And so, you know, on your computer, it's just happening in the background, but it's just simulating you making those clicks, but it could attempt to log into all 15 accounts, I don't know, maybe in 30 seconds, um, as opposed to a human going through that process might take five minutes, but that, you know, so that, that little thing, okay, maybe let's, let's say it saves two minutes on average, but that compounded by, you know, the, the thousands of phone calls that we were making as a department every day. Um, it just, it just pays dividends over and over and over again. And that, that little script was probably 25, 30 lines of code. But, but yeah, it was, it was it was really easy, actually, right? You know, and, and stuff like that where, you know, then you start to think about, okay, I have data in this one program, but I really need to open it, let's say, in my web browser. And so you start to think about how these two currently disconnected systems, you know, you have you have information on one side, but you want it on the other side. Well, then you think, okay, I wonder if I could use a script of some type to take it from kind of point A to point B and maybe open it, open the link in my browser, right? Well, you know, the, the best thing you can ever ask anybody who has any type of coding experience or just in general, software engineers, the best way you can frame your question to them is, I, I really don't think this is possible, but if you could, you know, do that, like, like as software engineers, we just love to kind of create this illusion. It's, it's almost like magicians, right? Uh, we, we love to just create this idea of, of the impossible can be achieved. And so uh, I think uh, one of my mentors there, she would often ask me, uh, like, I, I don't think there's any way you could do this, Matt. Um, and just whatever it was she said, I was, I was about to stay up all night to try and do it. Um, just the joy that comes out of building a product or a tool even that solves a problem. That's ultimately what software engineers are after. Are all of you guys and girls that ambitious? And does that ambition or drive carry over to other things? Or is it merely just this engineering and creating possibilities where there's currently no possibilities, just the objective itself that would want to make you stay up all night and solve it? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to make a blanket statement like that. But yeah, certainly the the best engineers I've worked with at their core are very curious, right? And so the idea of taking a challenging problem and solving it, just kind of bringing into the light a solution, that, that's just the best way to kind of tap into the, you know, there's like the logical side of your brain that understands the syntax of code and, and kind of just the constraints, uh, which, which are very few, but there are, are constraints. Then the, just the creative side where this idea of, of this is an unknown, that, that's a much more attractive problem to work on than, I don't know, just building something that's very kind of plain. You know, there's CRUD is an analogy, stands for create, review, update, delete. So it's kind of the thing about like just adding rows to, to Microsoft Excel. That's largely a CRUD operation. And that's one of the, the less kind of fun things to do because it's, it's largely a solved problem. Um, it does take up some time. And there's some neat tools that make it really easy to do that. But generally CRUD problems aren't aren't super fun to work on as an engineer. And, you know, every engineer is motivated differently though. There's, um, you know, design has, has really become a differentiator that I really see an opportunity for kind of engineers looking to break in. The ability to not just translate the problem into a solution, but to do it in a way that's elegant and is just very user friendly. That's a pretty unique skill. I think that's a, a pretty unique opportunity that's kind of facing the world today. I mean, so obviously, like you see the, the world-class examples of that, like Apple, right, where the, the interface exposes solutions in ways that maybe we didn't even think this is how I could use this tool before. When you think about starting a company, how do you think about innovation, solving the problem, automating everything from the start to the way that we've seen other tech companies that either scale at very fast 
rates or exit or just grow very quickly and take over a large market very quickly, et cetera. How do you think about that being an entrepreneur? Yeah, uh, great questions. So to jump on the the operating systems thing, and that, that's exactly it, right? Just whatever your current problem is, take that to someone who's got a technical background and really just brainstorm almost, you know, get in front of a whiteboard and and map out how long is the process? Okay, it's 17 steps, you know, well, how, what, what steps could we eliminate where there's not, there's not a ton of value generation. I, you do have to be careful not to use technology. Like, like, let's say it's in that customer acquisition example you had, make sure the customer's okay with that, right? Like if, if you just, you know, so, so many businesses have automated their customer service and I don't, I don't really want to talk to a robot, right? You have to understand if, if the technology is actually adding value, like maybe it does for the business, but it's actually a negative for your customer. You got to be a little bit careful about that. But the, the real key is you cannot, I, I just absolutely do not believe in taking solutions to engineers, right? Um, I, I believe in taking problems to engineers. Uh, so if you, if you frame uh, whatever the the goal is of your business, uh, you've you've got to you got to work with your development team and focus on what the problem is. Because oftentimes, when engineers get obsessed with what the problem is, they they can really use their creative energy to devise solutions that that you wouldn't have actually described as the business owner, right? And so I really believe in that. Um, and I think that's a major challenge you see with, with outsource teams. If you have a very clear vision of exactly what you want, uh, that, that strategy can be successful. But by and large, I believe in in-house development teams where they have access to, hey, here, here's what we're trying to accomplish as a business where we can drive outcomes and not just kind of a, a point-to-point solution. Running my own business and you know working with, with my co-founders, one of our challenges is actually, uh, honestly, our, our, some of our software engineering skill. When you're, when you're building a product, the, just rule number one is to make something that users love, right? And so you want to get that product in the user's hands. And uh, as we start building product, you know, none, none of my users have asked, what type of database am I running? What type of software stack do I run? Unless you're building a software product that is for other software engineers, where, where maybe that's a relevant you know, type of part of their decision-making process on whether or not to use your product. You can't obsess with, hey, we've got the latest and greatest technology. You really have to push yourself to stay focused on the product and, and even sometimes make suboptimal kind of engineering decisions because you... At the end of the day, if you don't make a product that users love, it doesn't matter that it could scale to millions and millions of users if, if you don't focus on those first few users. And so getting started, that, that's been my real focus is making sure we're, we're building something that users love rather than thinking about kind of the engineering principles that served me so well as we were scaling shipped. From how I understand it, you're constructing, you're creating a product that is good enough, get it to the market, get feedback improve it and keep building it. And, you know, we're going to get into some of this stuff in more detail about what it's actually like to be a part of a company, what it's like in that fast growing culture. But it sounds like there's some really great lessons to learn from just how software is approached, because there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be issues, but you have the data to quantify those issues, but then you're, you're kind of working a plan. And I think one of the hard parts about owning a business or, being a leader and even with somebody within the organization, but people that are ultimately responsible tend to take it harder. It's easy to like be a control freak or it's easy to like take everything so personal. It's easy to take a phone call from somebody and you know, you just, you could have done a hundred different things that day, but if there's like one terrible phone call, sometimes it's easy to blow it out of proportion mentally. So I'm curious from a software side, which is very logic based, it's very process oriented, is there some advice or perspective that you can share on how you use data processes and then customer feedback through issues, et cetera, to build and to always be continuously improving, but then also not trying to hinder your progress and your rate of production with a perfectionistic kind of mentality? Yeah, I mean, you have to figure out as a company, what's your North Star, right? What's the big goal that you're going after? And, you know, for a lot of companies, that might be revenue or 
user, some, some type of um, measure of, of how much users are using your product and consuming it. But you have to stay really focused on that. There's been a number of times in software where we've released features that we envisioned as a better kind of version of our product, right? And in fact, it drove the metric we were trying to improve, it drove it the wrong way. You know, it can, it can actually be as simple as the image we chose was less attractive or, or, or less clear as far as what it was supposed to be doing. And so you really have to focus on design a test, right? So, so it's, it's no different than the scientific method, right? Hey, write down your hypothesis. How, how, what is it that you want to change about the world? What behavior is it that you want to drive uh, out of the user? And then really just construct that experiment, right? So, okay, I believe if, if we add this to our onboarding process, we'll have a higher conversion rate out of the funnel. And then measure that, right? What you measure improves, right? So if, if you tell the team consistently, hey, here, here's what we're measuring is our conversion rate on the funnel. If you give that data back to the, the people who are actually building the product, they'll find all kinds of creative ways. Um, you know, one of the, the fun ones I saw, a good example of this was, I can't remember the name of the company, but their goal was to reduce um, the, the rate of churn, right? And so uh, they, had, they had all these big ideas on, on how to reduce churn and all these expensive, you know, kind of features and whatnot. Well, the, the best performing one ended up being they changed the, the button where you click cancel my subscription to quit. <laughs> um, you know, it's just that simple word change from cancel to quit. And all of a sudden, you know, as people, we don't want to quit something. That's, you know, that makes us feel bad. Like, I, I really don't mind canceling something. Um, and you can argue maybe the human psychology, like playing to that isn't maybe the best strategy. But that's a good example where, hey, it's not some new bell or whistle that we needed to add to the product to improve it. Hey, we're, we're focused on reducing churn. And so just change the button from cancel to quit. And that if that accomplishes the goal, because working with the, the team who's building the product, if you explain it in terms of the goal, uh, they're able to come up with these innovative ideas as opposed to if I said, I want to see a, a reduced membership rate to people who are attempting to cancel that, you know, th then you're prescribing the solution. And uh, that, that's just a huge anti-pattern in software and, and I would argue in business at large. So you, I guess one of the things that you're also saying is when you're, when you're starting to build something, it doesn't matter if it's from scratch or obviously established, you're very intentional on the front end creating the systems or processes for you to have the feedback, for you to know the data and for you to understand what the client's experience is of the product as you're continuing to build it. Absolutely. Yeah. Met metrics are one of the first things to, to put in. If you're not tracking metrics, I mean, it's no different than if you're, if you're running a business, you know, generating a P&L statement, right? They're not very fun those first few months, but if you're not tracking them, you really just don't know, right? Like, Hey, as a business, did we generate a profit or did we generate a loss? Was the loss what we expected? If you're not doing that, you know, you could have a home run and you don't actually know it, or you could be spending a ton of money and, and losing a lot and you're not really even aware. So, so absolutely, not really just your core accounting principles, but translating that into kind of measuring users if, if you're in a consumer product or it totally depends on what type of industry you're in, but measuring whatever outcome it is you're trying to drive. Hey everybody, we're gonna take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card. It gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the US. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms.
When you're all in for several years building out technology or running teams or founding your own company, what allows you to focus your curiosity and your drive on a specific problem or a series of problems within one specific organization? Is it hard for you to focus and channel your curiosity? Is it just kind of the way things have been for you where it's all geared towards one thing and then when that time's up, it's usually time to move on? Yeah, for me personally, I I do tend to get pretty obsessed with whatever the problem is that's most valuable to the company. And so I I really tend to to focus on whatever kind of the biggest fire um, is. Honestly, I I really enjoy the the messy side of things. Um, Early on at Ship, for example, uh, we had a lot of problems as our user base grew so substantially, it placed a whole lot of strain on our databases. So we're adding constantly, the development team created features at an incredible rate. And so as they would do that, some of those aren't necessarily optimized for database access. And, you know, as, as new customers are coming on board, right, they're all accessing the database. And so you have this, this really centralized resource is, is your database where there's just all this different kind of load and it's constantly changing, right? The, the patterns of um, how you're pulling data off of it. And so you're, you're really in this, relentless cycle of, of optimizing it, right? And so there's, there's options, right? You see, you can scale vertically. You can put bigger resources. Um, you can allocate kind of more resources, so more, more CPU, more memory to the database. That obviously costs money. <laughs> so there's just a, a trade-off of, hey, are, are we being efficient? And then you can just pour a lot of time into making sure, okay, this query is, is accessing it efficiently. But yeah, so, so I, I think for me, focus has largely been just working with um, some amazing teammates where they're able to kind of help pull you out. Sometimes you get so focused on the weeds and you, you know, database is a classic example for me. I, I just loved a nice, uh, clean, well-oiled uh, database. And at the end of the day, though, the business, I mean, they care about the database, but they only care about the database to the extent that it produces business results, Right. And sometimes what the business needs is another feature at the uh, cost of, you know, highly optimized database usage, but that's the right thing for the business, right? Um, now, that's a dangerous kind of pattern, right? You know, you have, like I said, the database kind of in the middle of everything. Um, and, and so you, you have to be aware of that. And, and to a degree, that's technical debt where you're doing something that's less efficient today that you'll have to, you'll have to pay, you have to spend some time in the future to re-optimize that. But if you're, if you're so obsessed, and this is kind of where um, you see older companies tend to do this, if you're so obsessed with the health of the database that you hinder your development team's ability to produce new features, you actually begin to grind the entire business into a halt. And so what, what you want is really a healthy competitive balance where you have a fast moving process and, and you, you put in really honestly a, a playbook. It's no different than as a business. If you are going to go to launch multiple cities, um, you want that same type of philosophy for launching software, right? So if we know, Hey, you know, we deployed yesterday and it, it crippled all of our servers and our site went down. Uh, well, well that's bad. And so you, you put in some checks and balances, right? But you can't, you really have to resist the temptation to say, well, now we're going to add 26 approvals are required before any change happens. The rate of change is what helps the business grow. And so that was, uh, we had some awesome leaders at Ship too, who just really made it clear that we were never going to stop. And so in some ways, a startup, you know, is, uh, they say like uh, jump, jumping off a cliff and building an airplane on the way down. In some ways, it feels like that. And I would say just there, the key is great, great team members, great teammates, I just got to work with so many awesome people who, you know, they were experts in their side of the business. And we, we just came together and said, hey, we, we just created some problem and we need to work together to solve it. And there's just no time for blaming other folks. You know, hey, hey, somebody made a mistake and it caused, you know, why result that we weren't anticipating. Rather than focus on, hey, well, that like, let's punish that person because they made a mistake. You can't do that, right? Like you gotta, you gotta be blameless and say, what, what is it as a system? How could we operate in a healthier capacity? But really focus on just how, how do we move forward from here? Uh, we use this kind of roll forward mentality a lot at Shipped in particular, where you know, if we were to release a bug to production, um, which happened occasionally, 
rather than think, how do we pull this back, you know, and, and kind of lose progress, we would say, can we fix this quickly and, and roll forward and, and kind of build towards the future? Because, it, you know, those rollbacks are very expensive. When you, when you have to roll back software, kind of creates a lot of mental havoc. And it, the biggest thing, though, is it causes everybody in the team to kind of slow down and pump the brakes. And that's the last thing you want in a startup is, is team members who are afraid to push the pace. You talk about rolling forward and you said things are moving so fast. You don't have time to just blame people like the team doesn't have time to blame people. So how have you learned how from a management perspective to move on, to roll with it, to deal with it, to fix it, to, to maintain optimism and encouragement, but then to also make changes when you need to make changes? Like how do you handle constructive feedback? How do you handle those hard conversations? How do you handle those hard decisions, especially in a very fast environment? Yeah, that was, it's a challenge, right? Um, I, I think a lot of it's just dealing with, with people and understanding just what motivates people. Uh, very few people are malicious actors, right? They just, you know, want to do a bad job. And I just, I, I just don't believe that. Um, I, I believe a lot of times poor work output is a, just a result of circumstances or, or miscommunication. And so communicate clearly. Every example that I can think of where I needed to talk to a team member that was underperforming, if you do it in a sincere way, they, they actually all really appreciated the conversation, right? They, they knew that, right? And so avoiding the conversation just, just made it worse. And so, yeah, with, when those situations have cropped up, uh, I, I think the important things are take action early, right? So start the conversation. Never assume that you understand the, the person's, never understand that you, under, that you know the source without talking to the person, right? It could be a very significant life event has happened for them. They could have been passed over for a promotion and you didn't think it was a big deal because there was no way they were going to get it, but they, they thought for sure that was their promotion to get. I've seen just so many examples where I, I didn't understand what the motivating factor was that was causing, you know, just kind of a, a work output drop. And just by talking to people, a number of those situations uh, solved themselves, you know, because like I said, people want to do a good job. But then in the situations where even after that conversation, it hasn't righted itself, uh, you got you to be decisive. You're not doing any favors for that person, right? They're, they're not, you know, no, nobody wants to be doing a bad job at work, you know, so we, we like to act like work is a family a lot of times. And I don't believe that at all. Work, work is a team, right? And it's no different than our, our favorite uh, pro sports teams. Sometimes you get cut from the team, right? And it's not, it's not personal. It's, it's a business decision. You know, Tom Brady, obviously legendary Patriots quarterback, he's going to play for the Bucks, right? And it's, it's a business decision. And, it's, you know, he still wants to play football and the Patriots want to move on. Uh, so obviously he's a Patriot legend, but – he doesn't fit into what that, you know, the Patriots want to do as an organization anymore. Um, and you can say they're wrong, but ultimately that's their decision as a business. And so I feel like treating team members as a part of a team is very different than a family. Uh, you can't really get cut from a family. Whereas a team, hey, sometimes the team changes, you know, and it's no longer a fit. And then sometimes the, the, the player, the team member changes. And sometimes they outperform and they're, they're almost kind of too talented for where the team's at right now. And sometimes they underperform and the team is improving, but, but they're not for whatever reason. But delaying action, it, it just creates a lot more tension. And, and you really want people to be able to move on with their life and get in a place where they can be healthy um, and, and where they can perform well. You know, I know you founded Buy Time and you've got two other partners and because we're friends and we spend time together, I've heard you talk about this, but how you like the idea of having partners. You like the idea of having a founding team. Also, too, you know, you come from Shift and there was one primary founder. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a couple venture rounds, Series A, Series B, but what do you think about you where you know kind of the teams that you want to build and how you're content with that? And then also, what are some observations about the founder of Shipped who put in $3 million of his own money, Bill Smith, and then they took a Series A round for $20 million, and then a Series B round for $40 million, and then two years after that, sold it for $500 million. And, you know, there's Naval or 
different people, they talk about just the different characteristics of founder where somebody like Bill Gates or Elon Musk, they can do the technical side, they can do the engineering side, they can do the personality side, the charismatic side. But then there's a lot of people that just aren't wired that way. Yeah, I think everybody, you know, there's there's no handbook that describes perfectly what the ideal founding team is, right? So you need First and foremost, you need availability, right? Who's available to, to partner with and, and work with? But with your founders, you really, you, you just really want a, a team that works well together, you know, partners. And so for uh, Michael, Mitchell, and I, uh, we, we just found a, a great blend where we're able to carry each other. And, you know, there's just a whole lot of ups and downs in startups. And when you sign up that first customer, right, and you know there there's a transaction that goes across the wire, uh, those, those are exciting moments, and they're they're a lot of fun to share with with the team. And then you have you know just lots of days that are a struggle and a grind, and on those days it, it's incredible to have partners who are, are picking you up and and they're working on the business and they've got this idea. And as you run into different walls, yeah. So, so for me personally, it, it's it's just huge to have just two guys that I trust and uh, know and have, have worked with quite a bit to just be able to navigate all the hurdles, right? I mean, you, you know, even relatively speaking, simple things like how to incorporate the business and how to, you know, pay this and that tax. And uh, as you go through things like that, it's great to have different people that, you know, just have, have all kinds of different networks and, oh, well, I know this person who's could help walk us through this process. And so they have, you know, you know, you now have access to that person who can help solve it. So I would highly recommend the co-founder route for anybody who's, who's getting started. It smooths out a lot of challenges. It, it does bring on its own challenges, right? You don't have unilateral decision-making. Uh, you have to consider your partner and things or partners you know, it's, it's not a, a relationship to enter into lightly, but if you if you can find great people that you'd love to work with uh, day in, day out, it's, it's pretty tough to beat. I'll try to answer the, the Bill question. Man, some people are just born founders, and, that, you know, that's, that's Bill Smith. Uh, he's just an incredible leader, and Bill is, yeah, he's just, he's just one of those special talents that's able to generate a tremendous amount of energy that's just driving the entire business in, in one direction. And so I, you know, there's, there's some uh, legends of when Bill got started. I think it may have been elementary or middle school um, when he started his first couple of businesses, but yeah, he's just kind of a a lifelong uh, entrepreneur and and certainly someone I admire that just has this uh, capacity to, just channel his energy and, and provide, you know, generate the outcomes that, that he sees. But like you said, you know, no, no one's, uh, no one's able to see the future perfectly. Uh, I think what, you know, someone like Bill does really well is he generates a number of at bats, right? So he, he, he really crafts an experiment and he, he believes, you know, the, the world will look different in the future in some way. And then he crafts an experiment and, he takes a really, you know, good swing at it, right? And sometimes that's a single, sometimes a double. And, and with Bill, obviously, he's had several home runs. And, you know, that's just a special gift. And I don't know, maybe, maybe one day down the road, uh, you know, if, if I had some, some pretty big home runs, maybe I'd consider doing it alone. But um, I, I, think, I think that's probably the exception and, and not necessarily a pattern to follow. It's a pattern to admire, but, but a difficult pattern to follow. You know, you read this, you pick up on this when you read enough books or articles, et cetera, but the founder of Shipped, you talked about how he sees the future. He sees the world going in a, in a different direction. And then they're literally trying to create a value or a service or a value add to be in line with where the world is moving and what the opportunities and possibilities are. So it sounds like what you're saying, there's just an ability to just have a tremendous amount of creativity and insight and kind of estimation to some degree. I mean, you never know if it's going to be right, but to project something into the future, but then also to be enough hands-on, have enough perseverance, to have enough optimism, charisma, et cetera, to build out the day-to-day and to form the teams to like get to that point. Whereas I think a lot of us, we're just kind of living in the world the way it is now as it is. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you know, we're all made with different gifts, but to me, it just seems incredibly impressive how certain people can have the ability 
Thomas dream or fantasize about where the world could be and then build something, raise money, et cetera, either to move us into that direction or to, to build something that is really going to have a lot of value and a lot of purpose in how the world evolves. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And in startups, a lot of it's timing and luck, right? Uh, you think about just kind of some, some one, one of the key moments in, in ship's trajectory taking off was actually Amazon purchasing Whole Foods, right? So as that was happening, it, it was just a huge signal to that entire industry that, that a technology giant is coming into this space, right? And obviously no one at Shipped had anything to do with generating that transaction because there was, the, you know, Shipped was already a, a business and, and had already a well-oiled machine by the, the time that took place. We were able to capitalize on that opportunity. And so sometimes it's just a matter of anticipating what can, can happen, but then you don't, you don't necessarily anticipate the, the actual event that is the impetus for uh, the business taking off. But, you know, as, as Amazon came into the grocery space, um, Instacart had, had some great success out on the West Coast um, and really nationwide. It just created more opportunity for shift. And so sometimes it's about, you know, making that bet as far as how the world should be. And then, you know, sometimes the breaks just have to come your way, right? And so timing is a huge part of business success, certainly. What was it like hiring the amount of delivery people in the gig space to keep up with the growth of shipped on your end, because you're building the technology, but you're bringing the delivery person and the consumer together. And so not only is it just a building the technology, but then B, you know, rolling this out, you know, I read in 17, y'all had gotten up to 47 markets, but then to actually go get enough people to do it. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the chaos of that and then how to do that successfully and then what it's like being on your end on the technology side, but then also needing that aspect of the company to be executed as well for it to work. Yeah. Uh, wow. I mean, there's phenomenal operations team. <laughs> they, when I first joined, uh, so we would, you know, we would call these, these new cities launches and launches were, 100% chaos, right? They were, they were fun, uh, but generally each new city required uh, new software features to be developed. It required a huge marketing push, right? We're entering into a city that really we have kind of very little brand awareness, so huge marketing push. And then exactly what you said, we've got to convince people who live in that city to try out this new service, right? So try out Shipped and it, it's a cool opportunity. All the pieces that go into a launch, I couldn't even begin to enumerate them. Uh, just so many people had a, a hand in that. And so I wasn't directly responsible for the launching process. But as those happened, what, what really impressed me, uh, I guess, as a, as a partner to that side of the business, was their ability to iterate and, and just constantly improve. So they would launch a city and say, hey, what went well? What didn't go well? And then they would incorporate that feedback into the next launch, which could be as soon as, as two days later. Sometimes it's the same day we launched multiple cities. And that was, that was, I mean, just, it was incredible to watch that team, but it, but it really felt like I, it's, it's tough to remember an exact moment. Uh, I got to participate in the, the launch of Philadelphia and I can't remember exactly when that was, but you know, I flew up to Philadelphia and, it was really fun as an engineer to, to kind of be on the road and be a part of, of launching a city and, and just really get to talk to users who were using our software every day to, to create a job and to create great experiences for members. And uh, we were launching Philadelphia. Just my, it, my software engineer imp impression was, I, I can't believe this works, right? There was just the coordination between marketing and our shopper success team and we would we'd fly in successful shoppers from all over the country to help train other shoppers just the amount of coordination to hey just get all these people to fly into the city at the same time it seemed like a lot for me but really just those teams you know they, they executed that playbook really violently and violently meaning hey do it and then improve it and do it again right and it was just incredible to watch. And so, you know, I, I went there and I thought, man, I'm going to really have to get my hands dirty and help out and whatnot. And my actual experience was, it was just really smooth. Um, and, and it was really fun. And one of the keys was, you got all this craziness going on as a business. 
And there's just so many dimensions you can focus on, right? We can focus on improving the product. We can improve the performance of the product. We can focus on, yeah, just, just every, every possible dimension, right? And there's, there's hundreds of employees at this point at Shipped uh, HQ, and, and everybody has their different perspective on what they think we should be working on, what the key next thing is. And uh, one of the just amazing um, aspects of Bill's leadership is he never let us take our focus off of uh, shoppers, right? And, you know, as, as you're trying to run uh, this business where there's, there's tight economics, you're, there's this temptation to say, well, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity to re- kind of work with the shoppers differently. And, and Bill just did a great job of making sure we, we didn't, uh, we, we recognized how much value each and every shopper brought to the shipped platform and just really treating them with the, the utmost respect and personal experience. When I went out to Philadelphia, that was just so evident, right? You know, I, I was able to talk to a chef who had, you know, started her own restaurant and uh, it wasn't going quite as well as expected. And so she needed some extra income and she, she needed a flexible schedule. And so she was so excited because she loved, you know, food and being in the grocery store and, you know, picking out fresh produce and this was an income producing opportunity for her. And um, I talked to another shopper and he was trying to earn some extra income so that uh, his dad had recently moved into a home care facility and, and he needed him. He wanted him to be in the, a better one. Um, and so he was using that income towards that. And another person who's using it to pay off their college debt. And you know, just to think of just all these different experiences and yeah, it's, it's like throughout all the kind of chaos that was happening with launches, just this relentless focus on creating a great experience for shoppers, uh, just never left. The way that you and then the person that you originally reported to know how to build software, y'all were just all aligned going into a new market and going in with operations and going in with all the hiring. The team was just very well put together. Y'all were rolling and it, it was chaotic. But y'all were equipped to navigate and to push through to that chaos to really get to scale. Yeah. Well, one of the changes that is it's just hard to understand until you experience it. But the company is constantly changing, right? So the, the things that you did to launch one city, they don't work to launch five cities. So you, have to, you have to adapt, right? Like, that's great that you found success in one city. Great. Now I go to two. Now I go to four. Now I go to eight. And it's it never stops changing, right? So even from a technology perspective, uh, I'm, I'm a deep believer in hire people who are better than you, right? That's the only way to do it, right? And so you hire people. Um, and, and so some of the early technologies we used, um, like some, some of my favorite tools, like Heroku, for example, which is a, a great tool, great way to deploy software. Well, as, as the company started growing, it, it's not necessarily that Heroku can't support the next layer, but but it becomes inefficient for just what we were trying to do. So we moved to uh, a core AWS, right? So so moved to running our own servers. Well, and at that time we had a team that was big enough to do it. Well, that wasn't my specialty, but the team had that skill, and so you you kind of have to move past what you personally prefer and allow the team to run full speed. And that's an exciting opportunity. So to migrate from one platform provider to another, well then. We had success on AWS, and then very, very quickly you migrate, you know, to to other abstractions on, on top of that because now you're not managing hundreds of servers, um, right? You're managing thousands of servers, and so the the processes that lead to success with a hundred servers is very different from um, the processes that lead to success at a thousand and you know ten thousand. In general, it follows orders of magnitude where you need to make changes, and sometimes those are on a technical level but also with people, right? The people who create tremendous success uh, of, you know, your first 10 software engineers, those aren't necessarily the engineers who enjoy working on the problems when there's a hundred software engineers, right? And I think you just have to be okay with that, right? Like, like it's, it's okay, right? Like some people, it, it's not that they're not cut out for it. It's just, hey, that's not what they, this is not where they're at their best, right? And some people, you know, continue, you know, there's plenty of people who are still working at ship today and just love it. And so they've scaled from being an early engineer to that, you know, they're still finding success, even as shipped is really, really exciting and big enterprise now, and they still love it. But, but yeah, so the company's changing and people are changing. Uh, you know, so for somebody like me, I, I really just, 
just have such fond memories of uh, shipped and I wanted to go try and recreate that success uh, myself and you know that that's that's what I wanted to do right but then other people they you know they they've gone and joined other series a companies right and that's where they really love to operate but everything's just constantly changing and you have to be okay with that right like you can't say hey well this worked for us you know um, in October and so it'll definitely work in December right it's just the, the the pace of change is too fast for that type of thinking what do you think about you kind of makes you uh able to operate and succeed in an environment with a lot of change and a lot of speed hmm. you know if I, I think about like my own career uh you know so I started with Blackboard, which is a, a great place to start really big company kind of the Microsoft of the nonprofit world if you will and just had, had tremendous learnings there but but huge teams, right? I mean, I mentioned I was in customer support, one of, you know, I don't know, 200 members in customer support at the time. And then I went to Daxco, which, I don't know, was about 200 employees when I joined. And it, it certainly has grown a lot since and is, is um, much larger now. But, you know, it was a smaller company. And I love that that feel and the culture there was tremendous. And then shipped. And, you know, when I, uh, when I think back at it, it, it felt just incredibly risky at the time. I, I, I didn't think that I would ever want my groceries delivered. And so uh, that, that, there's a valuable lesson there too. Is, uh, <laughs> don't worry about your own use case when you're building out software products. You don't necessarily have to build something that you yourself would use. Uh, of course, you know, I, I am a, a shipped member and a lifelong diehard now. But at the time, I didn't really, really, didn't really understand what the product was. And it felt really risky, but just really moving to a, a, an earlier stage company was part of my journey that I really enjoyed it shipped. And then, you know, post shipped, I've, I've really been on the hunt for, you know, what's next. Right. And once you get that taste of startup success, you, you know, some people just have to chase it. And so that's, that's where I'm at right now is just trying to find that same kind of rush, right? It's, it's, it's really almost an adrenaline type of rush uh, when you, when you start to find your groove in a startup and it's just so much fun. But yeah, I don't know. So, so I guess just to say like the, I don't know that I would have been ready for this at age 22, right? Like, like so many entrepreneurs are, are you know, just kind of right out of college is a, is a great time to start a business. Uh, but that wasn't me. Like I needed to, to learn from some kind of more success, you know, kind of more established companies. And then, you know, now I feel equipped to do it. I don't think there's ever a, a wrong time you know, you got to take your shot, right? Like, you know, you think about those moments, hey, I'd always regret if, if I didn't try this. And that, that's where I squarely am right now is, you know, had an opportunity to start building buytime.co with Michael and Mitchell. And yeah, we just had to take it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. Also, I have a weekly newsletter that comes out each week with the new episode, show notes, and more. You can sign up for this newsletter at podcast.sampcoats.com. Have a great day.